Welcome to week four on Wednesday night. We hope that you are Lenting well. Lent may not be fun or sexy, but it is so good. So we just encourage you to hang in there. Last week, we talked about this idea of the challenge that we have to trust God more, to pray for miracles to happen and for this fallen world to actually reflect the kingdom of God more than the fall of sin. And in the Our Father, we ask that God's kingdom will come and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this is such a huge prayer. It's big faith while Bill Hickok kind of praying, right? But we're called to pray it. Historically, the church has dared to pray these large impossible prayers because we serve a God who can do the impossible stuff, right? We're, we're to pray for the church. This is a cool old uh, prayer. It says, gracious father, we pray for thy holy Catholic church. And Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means, Catholic literally means universal church. We're praying for the church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where it is in anything that is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, amen. Such a great prayer. It's just a big kind of God, come on in and change this stuff. The church has always had that kind of attitude about incautious, almost recklessness about asking big things of God. Churches historically played these big prayers for the poor. Here's an example. Almighty and most merciful God, we remember before you all the poor and neglected persons whom it would be easy for us to forget, the homeless, the destitute, the old and the sick, and all who have none to care for them. Help us to heal those who are broken in body and spirit and to turn their sorrow into joy. Grant this, Father, for the love of your Son, who for the sake, for our sake became poor. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. So these beautiful prayers are big prayers. No one really thinks they'll all just be answered in a moment, but we still pray them. Here's another one for peace. Peace in the whole world. I just think it's so great. Almighty God, it goes, kindle, we pray, in every heart, the true love of peace and guide with your wisdom those who take counsel for the nations of the earth that in tranquility, your dominion may increase until the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever, amen. See, I think that, that we as believers, we, we need to dare to pray these big audacious prayers because of Paul's claim that we serve a God in Ephesians 3 and 20, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. We should utter these kinds of prayers, but here's the problem. The problem is in what theologians call the eschatological tension. That's just a big word that means that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully here. It's an issue of here, but not yet. That's called the eschatological tension. Uh, in, uh, we lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma for many years, and Tulsa is one of those places that in oh, middle of February, late February, early March for sure, um, uh, you see these daffodils start to come. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a declaration that spring is here, 
but not yet fully here. In other words, it could be a good bit of winter left, uh, but it's starting. That's our situation. As praying people, we're kind of the daffodil people, right? We witness to a spring that isn't fully here yet, to a God who's working but isn't fully worked all that he wants to do. It means that that we pray, and sometimes there are not that many flowers that show up. It looks like our faith maybe has failed, that the fullness of our answer hasn't come. We pray for healing and things get worse. So we pray for provision and bankruptcy still comes, or we pray for healed relationships and the relationships die. See, bad things sometimes don't change when we cry out to the heavens. Why? Because the kingdom is here, but not yet. Sometimes it changes. Sometimes we come in with bouquets full of daffodils because in that moment, God is making a statement. But when it doesn't come, we wanted to pick up on that just a little bit tonight and ask the question, what do we do when we cry out, when we know the kingdom of God is to come, but it doesn't come? The answer is twofold. The first part of the answer is what we said last week. We Pray like holy fools. We, in other words, we, we're in. We just pray. It's not our calling to try to figure out or be responsible for the results. It's our calling to simply cry to heaven. There's a text in Psalm 46 that says, God is our refuge and our strength. He's an ever-present help in trouble. It's so counterintuitive. We think if he's really present, we wouldn't have trouble. And yet he says, in the midst of trouble, he's ever present. God is always with us. And that's why he says, therefore, we will not fear. You know, though the kingdom has not yet fully come, even the earth, if it gives its way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I mean, this is not a good day being described here. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, we still stick with God. And then secondly, I think the thing that we need to do is we need to do what is called in theological circles, lament. What lament is, is I think it's being honest about the limits of our faith, honest about the fact that we're in this eschatological tension, and the fact that we live in a broken and a a sullied world. In Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this statement about creation. He says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. This is real for now. But by the will of the one, or not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated one day from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. That's including us. There's a part of our faith experience that needs to groan, not just celebrate. As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit um, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. Again, he's leaning into that idea. It's, there's a presence, but not yet fully here. And that, that eschatological tension creates a groan. 
Uh, he says, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Again, that tension is, but not fully yet. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, I, I think what texts like this are telling us is that God um, doesn't just want us to enter full celebration that redemption promises. I mean, he certainly wants us to rejoice. But on some level, God wants us to enter the groan that was caused by the fall. He wants us to taste it. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He tastes the full import and impact of, of loss and sin. I think that God wants us to, on some level, taste it and mourn it and remember texts like this from Jesus in Matthew 5, where he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But I don't think we want to mourn. I think we just always want to move directly to victory. This is one of the reasons why one of the least attended services in the church calendar is Good Friday. Because we only want the fix of redemption. We want the solution, particularly as Americans. We don't want to face suffering head on and taste it and experience it. We don't want to move to people who are ill or hurting. Um, we want to skip by that and just, you know, try to tell them to just buck up and trust God and maybe have a, a prayer, a quick prayer for a miracle. But what if it's impossible not to stop and taste the agony of life before we can actually taste the beauty of God's change and redemption? There's a guy by the name of Walter Brueggemann. He writes this. I'll quote him a couple of times in our time here. He says, Jesus sees that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted. And those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. He goes on. I used to think it curious that when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. It is usually a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage, he says. But now I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew what we dumb ones must always learn again. A, that weeping must be real because endings are real. B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones. Yet the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for, end quote. What if this is true? I mean, I'm saying to you that the many modern saints, especially those of us raised in the theology of triumph, right, where we rush so quickly to the concept of redemption and victory, that we avoid really feeling how bad things really are for ourselves and other people. Not that we should just sit there, but what if it's part of the journey? And I think the problem is we don't really have any handles for facing loss, except sometimes we view loss as the experience of a lack of faith or unbelief that should be silenced, certainly never uttered. 
But the scriptures are full of evidence that says we need to learn to experience the bad, that we need to enter the pain of the human loss and the experience of injustice. The Bible refers to this kind of idea as lament and complaint. We don't complain against God recklessly or faithlessly, but there is a complaint that is not faithless and is really out of a deep faith. There's a place where we can be honest about the pain that we face in the world that is rooted in something deeper than just some sort of cheap doubt and blame. Here's a classic example of this, of lament in scripture. This is out of Psalm 44. The psalmist writes, we have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have heard or told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish, their enemies, he's talking about. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and you're my God and who decrees victories for Jacob. But now watch. He says, through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our enemies, our armies rather. You made us retreat before our enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You hear the blame that's in there. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Wow. There's certainly victory in that as they rehearsed the goodness of God, but there is lament in that saying, things are not right. Where are you? This isn't born out of cheap blame. This is born out of some deep sense of God, you have always been faithful. What happened? All the Bible big guys, man, did this kind of thing. I mean, at first blush, it seems so brash, almost accusatory against God. But these kinds of prayers are not so much an attack on God's goodness as they are 
a plead for justice, a cry for God to arise as judge and order things to be made right. But it, it's still a vulnerable thing I mean, to say to God, the ruler, hey, things are falling apart. They are not as they should be. Your rule is not working here. Let me give you a, a couple more examples of this kind of thing because it's pretty strange to us, particularly we modern evangelical charismatic people who only seem to want to hang in victory. This is Exodus 32, 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? <laughs> the whole nation of Israel gathered to complain to God in Judges 21. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Psalm 42, 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? You remember this one. This is Psalm 22, 1. It's the one that Jesus actually speaks from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Here's another one, Job 10, 1. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my soul. See, what's happening here? The theologians call this lament. It's this idea that people who are feeling this way dare to utter it to God because they realize he already knows it anyway. It doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that their complaints or their, um, or their um, blame is really theologically true but it is what they're feeling. Somehow they felt it was important to let God know how they felt that they needed to mourn in order to experience the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. It was considered an appropriate form of prayer and worship. Why? Because it took faith to do it. Again, we're not talking about cheap accusations here. I worked for this company when I was in college. It was a grocery store chain and I was behind the register. And this lady one time came up to me and she was so mean to me. And I thought, I took it personally. I thought, well, what, what did I ever do to you? But it, I realized later, she was, I was just representing all the retailers who have ever messed with her. And she was filled with anger for the past and she was filled with self-pity. She had no understanding. This is not lament. We're not talking about cussing at God because we think he's being unfair or we're being baptized in self-pity and we're just, that's not what this is about. Lament is us being honest with God about our disappointment and confident that he will not reject us. And that, my friend, takes faith. You know, it's like my wife, Kale. We're, you know, we've married 42 years, or 41 years, and, and um, she, she will sometimes look at, you and look at me and say, I hate you right now. <laughs> she doesn't really hate me, but she's feeling, and she's, she knows she's safe to tell me that she doesn't like where I'm at right now or what's happened right now. And, and that actual kind of, that, that complaint, that thing is out of intimacy, not cheap. I saw this movie years ago called Rendition and, and uh, it has a, story, a whole storyline, but then it had another storyline, a couple storylines going on within the movie. And one of those sidebar storylines was this husband, uh, uh, older couple and wife who were, were, had been uh, married for years. And he was involved, the husband had a tension because he was not only deeply committed to his family, he had one daughter, and he was committed to his family, to his wife, but he was also committed to the country. He was a politician. And the wife was really 
um, torn because she knew that because of his commitment in that developing nation that the story involves uh, threatened his life. People were out to kill him. Lots of terrorism and that kind of thing in this country. And so she would say to him, why are you involved? Why is this so important to you? Don't you care about us? And the husband, well, of course I care about you. But he he felt this sense that he needed to be responsible for other families and the nation. And so he's torn with these two worlds. Well, another part of the story is the daughter who is there um, falls in love unbeknownst with a terrorist, a very terrorist that's out to kill her dad. She doesn't know that. Well, as the story unfolds, the girl is missing for a while. The husband had just had a, an attempt on his life. A bomb blew up close by to him, and, and so he, he didn't get killed. But he's standing there a couple of days after that happens. I guess it was about a week after that happened. And the daughter was missing, and they realized that what had happened was when the dad was his life almost was killed by the bomb. That daughter had gone into the square looking for her dad and was killed. And when they realized at that moment in the film, when he comes in knowing that the daughter they'd been looking for for a week has been dead the whole time and that she had been killed in the bomb, you can see him walking in and the wife on the other end of the table looking at him and she knew that the daughter had died in this, this bomb. And the, the wife comes to him and starts hitting him on the chest, screaming and hitting him on the chest, crying. And the husband just stands there and he takes it and he takes it and he takes it until she runs out of complaint. And then they embrace. See, this, this is lament. It's us not understanding what's going on. It's us realizes sometimes life has such deep loss. And we come to God and we go, why, 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 why? We come to him that openly because we love him that much and he takes it and he takes it until we're done. And then he embraces us. In Sally Brown and Patrick Miller's book on lament, they wrote this, quote, nearly all the lament prayers move to some expression of confidence or assurance of being heard. The complaint without trust is not lament. I'm talking about cheap complaining here. The complaint itself before God is an act of trust. See, the truth is sometimes things are not right and we get hurt and we don't feel safe in life. And many end up just whining and complaining to God, but it's a faithless thing. It's not rooted in deep relationship. I think God wants us to take our deep hurt and our complaint because we love God so much. And with that place of loving him and thinking back on his faithfulness, we say, God, why? What is going on here out of that rootedness? First time I ever saw this was with a Catholic nun of all people. Sister just said, Marie in central Wisconsin. And uh, I was sitting down with this young Pentecostal kid and she was talking about, she said, you know, God and I had it out this morning. And I looked at her like, what? I didn't quite understand what she said. Well, she said, well, you know that I'm a nun. And she said, I'm married to God, right? So he's the closest thing I'm ever going to have to a husband. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I've been praying about this thing. I'm not getting any answers. And this morning I had my Bible open and I took it and I threw it against the wall. And I said to God, what are you going to treat me like a woman? Now, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, and God didn't kill you? I mean, I had no conceptual space for this. And yet, there was this kind of sense in me where I thought, man, I wish, I wish I had, could be honest with God like that. I wish I had the faith 
to really tell him what I felt sometimes. But what if God wants us to do that? What if God wants us to face him and to ask him, why are you sleeping? Why did you forsake me in that? When will things change? See, most of us have been let down by God before, but most of us have never given that voice. What if that's unhealthy spiritually? I mean, don't misunderstand me. These saints who lamented knew that God was ultimately faithful and they knew that God was loving and they knew that God was redemptive. That's why they lamented. They gave voice to that after, um, uh, you know, uh, experiencing his faithfulness. After the psalmist lamented in the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That I read earlier, why have you been so far from saving me, so far from the words of my mouth? He goes on to say in the later part of that text, the same psalm, he he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So even though there's a complaint, there's this sense of God's faithfulness. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. See, just we lament, but we lament within the context of trust. Let me go to Brueggemann again. He says, the most interesting and perhaps most important recurring feature of the lament form of prayer is that while it characteristically begins in need, sadness, or dire strait, these same prayers characteristically end in praise, celebration, and confidence that God has acted or will act. These prayers are real prayers and not merely psychological acts whereby the speaker feels better by expressing need out loud. The prayers, some of them savage in their urgency, are acts of hope uttered in confidence that God will hear and act in response. See, lament recognizes that the soul needs to mourn evil before it can embrace the answer God has, which means we can try to enter the answer too quickly. Lament means the saints must give voice to their grief. We must taste the pain of endings before we can taste the joy of newness. We need to learn to vent. And in so doing, it opens up the way for the new. That means God is okay with us complaining to him. It means that he knows we need to do so. My disappointment, my heartaches early on, I would default to, I know you will work it out, Lord. And my disappointment would go unspoken. I didn't have language for, why, Lord? Why am I here? Why haven't things changed? I would only speak of God's sovereignty. But I was really only in a kind of denial of how God seemed to fail me and my cries. See, lament recognizes the problem of the promises. We're promised health, but sometimes sickness finds us. We're promised provision, but sometimes it doesn't come. We're promised protection, and sometimes we're not protected. We're promised children, sometimes we don't get them. We're promised strength beyond temptation, and sometimes people end up in addictions. They overtake us. Lament is us speaking to God about it. Again, Brueggemann. The lament makes an assertion about God that this dangerous available God matters in every dimension of life where God's dangerous availability is lost because we fail to carry on our part of the difficult conversation where God's vulnerability and passion are removed from our speech. We're consigned to anxiety and despair and the world as we now have it becomes absolutized. This kind of prayer requires a high level of intimacy. See, if we're not careful, though we love God with all we can muster, 
we carry wounds and we ignore it. We try to be good little soldiers and we try to turn positive instantly, right? God will turn this to good. Things will work out. It'll be okay. There's always some purpose that I don't know. These statements may or may not be true, but Christian theism would say that those statements presume that you have had time to lament. I mean, truth is we evangelicals don't know how to deal with pain. We don't really enter into it. We are just paralyzed by it. And then we smoke the praise the Lord ganja, right? Some of you remember the, the Colorado church some years ago that had the shooting in the church. And as they were bringing the cameras to people from the mass media, you know, the, the coming and showing people, person after person, here's what they said. I mean, there were two young girls murdered. But person after person in the church as they were interviewing them, you know what they said? Man, it was a miracle that now more people were killed. It was amazing that our people, you know, weren't so aware and they were able to take out the shooter. No one said two girls were shot dead in our parking lot today. We don't, we don't know where God was. I mean, who cares that not more were killed? I'll tell you the family that lost both of their girls in that nightmarish moment, it wasn't a praise of the Lord moment for them. And yet that's how we move to victory first. Brueggemann, one more time. In the pervasive practice of the church, the liturgical prayer and in personal devotion, lament prayers have nearly disappeared from the horizon of faith, which is an immensely important development. Likely they remain unused because A, they are too raw, candid, and abrasive for nice Christians. And B, they are too robust in hope for modern people who do not expect a God who actually hears and acts. The toning down of a prayer to less demanding form constitutes a loss of realism, candor, and robustness in most prayer, in much prayer, end quote. If we don't learn to enter the horror of pain, if we just go on, our faith and our words of encouragement are nothing more than numbing painkillers like Tylenol. But then you'll have to get something stronger next time, like oxycodone or Vicodin. I mean, non-lamenters eventually end up numb in their faith. Don't anesthetize your pain. Enter into it fully. Embrace the suck. Feel its ravaging, its unfairness, its cruelty, its bitterness. Feel the groan evil brings. Enter the pain in it, but just open up to a faithful God about it. Though you may not know, it isn't, you know, uh, I mean, in your heart or in your mind, you know it isn't God that did it, right? God isn't the one who perpetrates evil. You still need to articulate the emotional disappointment to God over it. Why, Lord? Why did this happen? You're faithful. Why didn't you respond? Why didn't you prevent this? When will this change? When will it ever change? Why do others succeed? And, and, and they act worse than I do. I thought this would have changed by now. All those kinds of prayers break through the numbness and releases his glory. What are we saying? It's okay to cry. It's okay to ask why. It's okay to hurt. It's okay if you have pain. The safest way to deal with this, if you dare to lament, use the Psalms as a template. They, as you pray them, will help you enter with robust faith 
complaint, but then faithfulness to the fact you know God will act on your behalf. Let's take some time and talk about this. This is a kind of a gnarly one. Grace to you.